Hello and welcome to the Flucoma podcast. Today I'm talking with two people, Bora Yoon, who is a composer, vocalist and multi-instrumentalist who conjures audiovisual soundscapes using digital devices, voice and found objects and a variety of instruments. And Davis Polito, an electronic music designer and researcher currently based at the New Instrument Research Lab at Princeton, and who is the assistant director of the Princeton Laptop Orchestra, better known as PLOC. So today we'll be learning more about their respective creative processes, and we'll also be taking a close look at a recent collaboration that makes use of some of the Flucoma tools. Uh, the recently premiered multimedia and interdisciplinary performance piece, Cat's Cradle. So Bora and Davis, hello, and thank you for taking the time for talking with me today. Hello, hello. Thanks for Hi. having us. Quite welcome. Um, so I think it'd be good uh, to begin by hearing you each kind of uh, describe your practice and how you got into uh, what you do. So uh, perhaps Bora to begin. <laughs> sure. Uh, lovely to be here today. Um, I'm a composer, vocalist and a sound artist. Uh, this particular piece, Cat's Cradle, does not have any vocals or text in it. But as a sound artist and as a composer, um, I, I've i been classically trained, but also have worked in theater and in dance, and I guess not necessarily formal dance, but just this idea of gesture is always in my work. Uh, I work a lot in choral music, so I'm very aware of this idea of conducting or conduction, or like this idea of, I, I work a lot in the sciences as well, so I always love kind of making metaphors between of how we interact as social agents in an ensemble or a group, uh, but with and also within a system that's um, apparent sometimes in the technologies that we engage. So, in terms of describing my practice, you know, it really evolved uh, musically. It's very rooted in a sonic experience first. Uh, think always thinking about the visual and gestural characteristics that come out of a musical intention, uh, and then how it is ultimately kind of presented or staged usually in some kind of site-specific format or in a way that engages with the intersection of sound and space or music and architecture. Uh, that's uh, just in a nutshell kind of where my interests lie as an electroacoustic composer that's been classically trained but has put an um, amplified everything that she owns and started to process things eventually kind of led me into this uh, more interactive realm. Uh, so. It, it definitely is a hybrid between acoustic thinking and spatial thinking uh, then applied to music and musical instruments that have gone into more amplified and electronic fields. Okay, great. And uh, Davis, how about you? Uh, yeah, I kind of came in the exact opposite way. Um, the <laughs> first instrument I ever really learned how to play was Eurorack stuff. Um, we had a, I took a class in college with this professor at Penn called Eugene Liu, named Eugene Liu. And we just like got access to like five different Eurorack systems. And while I was doing that class, I also met this guy outside of Philadelphia in uh, North Wales, PA, that worked repairing Rhodes pianos, Hammond organs, retrofitting synths. Um, and so I, I was taking, I was doing a computer engineering degree and started working under him, would go out there every week and sort of build weird circuits or like my, mostly microcontroller stuff where I was coding for him. And then as I started to do this, I started to like make dance music and eventually got to the point where I was more interested in performance and learning classical classic classical instruments like traditional instruments like drums and keyboard and all that kind of stuff and by the time i graduated i was like i don't really want to go into the tech world i kind of want to do something in this music realm so i went to grad school at carnegie mellon um one of my professors was actually frida abtan who i saw that Joe had a podcast with mm -hmm. and she told me about this job at princeton she's like oh i just saw this job open up i think you'd be great for it and that's how i ended up here and that's how I ended up directing, assistant directing Plork and working in this capacity. 
And so since then, since grad school, it's just been music my whole life. I'm kind of like having my 12 year old just picked up a guitar moment. Uh, I'm playing like all these instruments I play in like a punk rock band here. And that's, that's how I got here, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So shout out there to Frida Abtan, who was actually the first guest on the Flukoma podcast. He was, uh, <laughs> he was uh, nice enough to agree to, to, to take that dare. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So talking about Plork there, but, but perhaps for those who might not know what Plork is and the kind of uh, institutional side of things, maybe you could talk about um, talk about Plork and also perhaps describe the context within which um, the both of you came to working together. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll start with what Plork is. Plork is, as I understand it, the first academic laptop orchestra. It originally started as a class taught by Dan Truman and one of his collaborators. Um, the okay. thought being like, how can we get a bunch of students together and make electronic music um, kind of in the same vein as like the 70s and 80s, like sort of hub stuff where people were making their own computers and figuring out how they could play together. Um, it they So they created these hemispherical speakers that Dan had been performing with for a couple of years at that point. And each student was given a laptop, hemispherical speaker, you know, some sort of audio interface thing. We actually just cleared out like all the old big like suitcase style, like gator cases that everything was in because we like compacted it down to just a focus right speaker, a sub and these little hemispherical speakers, which is what we've been performing with for the past 10 or so years, I think. Um, and so for a long time, it was a class where people would learn computer music and everyone would write pieces and then Plurk would perform them. Um, but over the past couple of years, it's become more of a, a, a ensemble that just meets once a week, isn't a class. Students are still creating pieces, but it gives us a lot of flexibility in that people can be in Plurk for four years in a row. Um, you don't have to come in with any sort of experience. You don't have to come in expecting some sort of time commitment or learning goal. You can just come in and have fun, learn electronic music and perform in these new contexts. Hmm. Uh, it's also based on the idea with the hemispheric speaker, just like an orchestra, that the idea that each instrumentalist is a sound source themselves themselves and so each source of sound or each player um has their own uh that the ensemble together makes a a, a sonic collective experience for the audience as well as kind of spatially configured um i think what's exciting about the about laptop orchestras and specifically plork is also the fact that there's no canon right like this is such a 21st century invention mm -hmm. that there's no like there's no history and there's no canon or classical uh kind of baggage that comes with this idea uh, so it's like you know based on this idea of an orchestra but also then you know it's it sits nicely in, in the threshold between where you know we're given the latitude to create uh, the the repertoire for this type of uh, ensemble or instrumentation or canon. Um, so Dan is a very you know he's he's my advisor at Princeton, uh, and I met Plork because I, well I actually knew about Plork first <laughs> uh, before I even uh, applied to Princeton through Luke Dubois, who was the assistant director with Perry Cook and uh, uh, and Dan for a long time when they started all of this and the Stanford laptop orchestra also uh, kind of came off of this as well. So a lot of laptop orchestras came from uh, this, from Dan Truman. They, they all, the Dublin one, the um, the Stanford one, the Princeton one. Uh, so yeah, and and also it's, it's neat because he's such a folk violinist as well. Like he's an Irish traditional fiddler as well as a coder. So he's really the like to me, he was just the best advisor and the kind of thinker I needed as a composer who works in the electronic and acoustic realms, um, who thinks about instrument building, who thinks about, you know, models and industries in different ways. And so I was really grateful for someone, a hybrid thinker like Dan, to have started this kind of culture, to start this kind of genesis and, um, you know, keeping this kind of thinking alive um, between uh, between the coding world and uh, the interactive world and an instrument building and the physicality of, of sound and music. Mm. 
Now, um, so obviously we'll get into a concrete example with Cat's Cradle in, in a second, but uh, yeah, this idea of this whole um, realm of instrument building is obviously a topic that um, is very important for a lot of people that are using things like the Flucoma tools. Um, I wonder if perhaps you could both describe um, your approaches to, to instrument building in general and so be diff interesting you know, coming from these different backgrounds, Davis modular stuff. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear how you how you kind of approach that idea of instrument building. Yeah, I, I guess I can start. Um, I think for me, the most important thing is always thinking about like, what is the end user's experience? So kind of a UX experience, but also like not just, you know, what it looks like and feels like, but like what's the embodied experience when I was in grad school, I got really into um, a performer and instrument builder, Marco Donnarumma, who wrote a lot and spoke a lot about um, the actual physicality and autonomy, like anatomy of the of the, the things that he was creating. He created a bunch of stuff using, you know, muscle sensing and all these all these pieces where it was really an embodied experience. And I'm always thinking whenever I'm trying to build something, it's like, okay, we're adding a new feature. How does that change the way someone's interacting with this instrument? Are we just adding something to add something? Or can you actually expressively use this thing that's gonna that's gonna come into this this system? So be that like a you know, a new parameter added to a sort of tether thing, or with my work with Dan and Jeff, who are those are the people that I work directly under. I work on their projects. Um with with Jeff, we're building you know, physical, a lot of physical instruments, this like bass guitar, MIDI controller, synthesizer, and this pedal steel thing. And so it's constantly the question being, okay, we want this like thing, like we want to be able to do slap type sounds, or we want the mute sound of a, of a bass guitar to like exist when you play it. How do we add that to the system and how does it remain a performative thing and not a challenge to overcome? Hmm. So that tangible, very kind of physical aspect of it is is very important in your approach. Yeah, very yeah. much. And and Bora, um, perhaps to get into that as well. One 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 interesting um, thing that you, when writing about the piece that we're going to be talking about, is, um, you talked about being influenced by uh, by Ellen Fullman's long string instruments. Um, I wonder if you could perhaps talk about the, those instruments and how they inspired you um, and also talk about your, your, your approach to instrument design. Yeah. Um, Ellen Fullman is a, a Bay area artist uh, who created the long string instrument. That was actually the original Genesis of that project was actually, it was from Lucier's music on a long, uh, long thin wire. Uh, but instead with many, right? And um, came from actually an accidental discovery of rosin trying to bow the the wire of two cans um, perpendicularly instead of longitudinally. So actually she just was walking by and happened to touch the rosin section and it made a sound instead of the perpendicular way. Uh, and that started the, uh, just started from a phenomenon of literally where she thought it was a failed experiment to then finding the sonic phenomenon that seemed to then be uh, a spark of how to hone that into then, you know, being a sustained sound, how to tune that sound, how to repitch that sound and turn it into a system. Um, and so, uh, you know, I I work very similarly, actually, in the sense of I finding idiosyncratic things about how sound is made and then how to zero in on that. Um, I usually just find some kind of interesting thing that'll catch my eye or my ear and I get obsessed with it. And then I just try to figure out how to turn that into, a turn that small little phenomenon into, or phoneme, into a a word into a sentence into a thought into something larger and so for cat's cradle i remember uh seeing that the plork uh tethers had always been fluorescent pink or that they were always cut i thought they looked black light reactive and then they probably are and then i found out that they were and then i was like well that seems like a very promising something that somebody should do something with <laughs> um you know that could have just easily been black or that could have easily been another color and so that had always been just a an idea in my mind for a while of being like you could that that should be turned into 
that that is a visual component that is very strong um mm-hmm. that can turn into uh, not just a sonic language, but a visual language, a dimensional language that has, you know, because the XYZ of the tether is what makes it so powerful. Um, you know, it might make it a failed golf controller but for a video game, but for, you know, multimedia and interactive parsing and coding, it's awesome. And it doesn't always have to be on the ground as a default either. You know, it could be on the wall. You could, you could, so I could just started to see gestural ideas or uh, associations that were um, part of this. And Ellen Fullman's uh, residency that I helped curate at Princeton with part of the interdisciplinary humanities <clears throat> helped, of course, develop this idea of talking with her about how, you know, one phenomenon became an instrument, became a system has, you know, essentially become, uh, to me, the way I see it, it's, you know, it's, there are two tension, uh, sorry, there are two resonator boxes on one side of the room strung all the way to the other side uh and then there are different nodal points that's that stop the the length of the string to have different pitches and different ratios uh and essentially because the, turns the room or the gallery or the church that it's in into an inverted violin right um where the room itself is a resonator uh, resonating the re- the boxes on the wall. Um, but then also she performs with her partner, Teresa Wong, who is a cellist, who in, a, in essence, the cello is almost, you know, that's the more codified and more classical instrument that has a canon and has a history and has, you know, many associations and uh, that come with it. Uh, then in comparison with the long string instrument, I find it to be just a wonderful juxtaposition of scale and also of of instrument design, but just gone further out. And so that kind of nesting structure, this idea of how do you take a classical instrument and, you know, like essentially like how do you blow that up into a amplified version where you're inside the cello, you're literally, it's an immersive experience to be in the instrument, as well as being an embodied instrument, uh, an embodied, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily embodied performance, it's she's actually acting as a human bow, I realize, you know, Ellen Fullman, when she goes across the stage or that area, she is functionally acting as a human bow for mm. those strings. You know, she's not performing, quote unquote, in the sense of like, you know, like she's a persona and there's a story being told. She's very much an enlarged instrument. Mm. Uh, And I find this to be, I I just love this entire idea of amplification of scale being next to one another. um, And how just in a theatrical sense, how putting these elements or scenes next to each other the mind associates these together as well. Then you see Teresa with her with her bow and cello. You see Ellen in the distance with you know moving longitudinally along these strings, which is a further amplification of that cello. And when you see those two things together, you then start to see a larger self nesting system. And I and that's where my imagine takes off of of how to then create uh, instruments that are that are holdable, but also are scalable and architectural and gestural. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a, that is a really interesting approach to, yeah, because obviously in, in this field, uh, the, the idea of the bounding of the instrument and where an instrument, an instrument begins and ends. And, you know, with all these configurations that are constantly being innovated and created and yeah, that, that idea of, of, of Ellen becoming, the bow and uh, becoming a, a, a tangible part of the instrument. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, yeah, so we've we've begun to talk about it, but I'd love to really get into this piece. So, so Cat's Cradle, um, and sort of I think to start, um, we should uh, we should get people up to speed um, about what it is uh, that we're talking about. So, I understand this podcast also has a section of links, and so you can, mm-hmm. can go there to check out uh, the performance of Cat's Cradle um, by the Princeton Laptop Orchestra. Uh, as we as we start to talk about kind of this very sculptural and gestural piece that would probably help to have a visual. I'll be linking to that into the description, even if I imagine it doesn't quite compare to actually being within the space, but it's still a really intriguing video to watch. Um, yeah, I, I, I wonder if I you could... just showing it to people because it's really hard to describe. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll try and describe it here, but uh, obviously, but 
probably better if people hit pause and go and, and go and watch it themselves because it's a yeah it's it's a it's a really intriguing piece um yeah i so began talking about it i wonder if perhaps we could um describe the piece on an aesthetic level what what it was you were wanting to achieve um and also perhaps get into how some of the things are working on a technical level um and perhaps begin to talk about um your various roles um within the creation of this this piece cat's cradle uh is a interactive performance piece that uh looks like a uh, kinetic sculpture when you first walk into the venue. Uh, when you first walk into the venue, you see a triangle of uh, glowing pink lines that come from the ground all that meet at a singular point at the top of the stage. So you just see uh, uh, five pairs of lines that create a triangle. Uh, slowly, players come on stage one by one, and they open the the pink lines and move forward and backwards. And this gesture uh, activates the sculpture, essentially. And the sculpture then becomes kinetic, uh, very malleable. Uh, and there is definitely a tempo to how these gestures are made and kind of breathed. Um, and so eventually four players then in tandem are doing these gestures with these glowing pink lines. Uh, slowly carabiners get added to in between these tethers so then they become kind of diamond shaped and then the interactions between these lines become much more geometric. Uh, then a second set of carabiners are added, adding to the geometry of this kinetic sculpture. So now these uh, I guess eight pink lines have now become a pattern of kind of argyle within a larger pyramid. And each player is acting as an agent um, to essentially, uh, in tandem, move the sculpture along its z-axis and x-axis um, and y-axis, actually, to create a breathing sensation. And then this larger sculpture then starts to have um, 3D form uh, and starts to hold and strike different patterns. And all of these actions are attenuated, of course, then uh, through flucoma on the on the coding side, then to be um, different different sensations of uh, the spectral signature. So we're we've attenuated all of these uh, strings to be parts of the nodes of a of a harmonic. Uh, palette. So each movement forward or back of this string then is either bringing out a harmonic node or a, uh, this is all based off of uh, a Rizé patch. Um, mm -hmm. So it's in the various nodes of different states, um, of different harmonic states and exciting essentially different parts of the, of the harmonic spectrum to create the timbre uh, the timbre differences that you're hearing in probably mm. the first nine minutes of this piece. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I'm I'm interested to hear about that that process that you that you briefly mentioned there. So, um, so you uh, did how did you come across that patch? Um, and 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 so from what I understand, you then kind of explored it on your on on your own and then sent it over to to Davis and and kind of did you. Uh, how, to what extent did you express your 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 kind of wish of of of, of what you wanted to do um departing from that patch how, how did that process kind of formulate yeah yeah um i want to also very uh it's critical to interject that jeff snyder uh who is the director of the princeton laptop orchestra and the director of electronic music at princeton um is one of the main collaborators in this piece as well um i first came across this patch actually in dan truman's instrument building course that i helped um TA and uh, this Rizé patch is actually a, is a very old one that Perry Cook and him and Luke Dubois made with a Sinmat um, set of patches back. It was I forget, it's like one of it was it, it's an it's an oldie but goodie <laughs> that actually just uh, activates a lot of the Rizé um, phenomenon that uh, that activate all the different uh, nodes of the of uh, of the harmonics essentially. So. Um, yeah, this is in terms of the physicality. Uh, 
what I just explained was kind of the gestural origin and genesis of it. Uh, the sonic palette came initially from this and from this uh, rose patch uh, that Dan and Perry and Luke had created many years ago, um, and then also uh, was born of the love that Jeff Snyder and I have for Bjork, and how we're both obsessed with the post and uh, homogenic records and how awesome they are. So it became kind of a hybrid. Uh, from a sonic palette point of view, I remember Jeff and I were <laughs> talking about how I was like, hey, Jeff, I'm recently on this new Jag right now where I'm driving around town just like blasting homogenic. And I just remembered how awesome Hyper Ballad is and the track I Miss You. Um, and we both listened to them and we're like, yeah, maybe we could start with the Rizé spectral stuff and then we can end up getting to like really crazy Bjorked out, like groovy, electronic, more like beat based things. And so that became our blueprint for the sonic <laughs> portion of, of, of like of, of how we wanted the, the piece to kind of open and evolve so that the sculpture was a visual surprise that was slowly activated. The space was activated. The, um, the players came on board. Then eventually the two people who are quote unquote pantomiming Cat's Cradle with hot hand sensors, which are essentially um, accelerometers on your middle finger um and uh they so it's taking the 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 gesture of creating the cat's cradle string being able to take the x's and do all the different patterns that you know from childhood um so kind of creating that theatrical juxtaposition of the two players in the ground pantomiming cat's cradle uh with the hot hand sensors uh which are then essentially creating a cutoff filter on the larger sculpture behind that is the synthesis engine um or the sound is being made from the tethers and the two players playing cat's cradle are simply just kind of doing cutoffs and things like that but davis you can speak to this certainly to a lot more detail uh <laughs> uh yeah yeah i mean that's that's pretty pretty accurate as to to how it how we got there um basically she had this idea of the risse thing and i was looking at this thing that we were trying to put together and we it was something that we were like never going to be able to make until the week before because we couldn't get into a space like this is the space that we have which is great but there's nowhere to hang Come stuff down up. A little. yeah this is plork and there's really and it's a great space it's like a lot of open space but we can't really like hang anything up anywhere and this was going to be an installation and i was like okay well we can build this sonic palette but we're going to need some sort of machine learning because i i would not be able to make some sort of mapping that would make sense with the six axes that you get per controller and then the fact that we want everything to work together so i was like oh let's use flucoma and we'll take this Rosé thing, which was actually pretty similar to a piece that I did in grad school with a MFA student at Carnegie Mellon, Juliana Johnston, with uh, I think we had four dancers and we were doing body tracking and touch designer. And we just made some sort of MC harmonic oscillator system that was connected to the shapes that they were creating. I was like, OK, well, we can use a similar MC thing to accomplish the Rosé stuff and get control, but then we'll use Flucoma to map all these things to whatever sound we wanted. And so it's, it's the Flucoma of it all is this, is the, the, like it, one of the intro tutorials by Ted Moore, where uh, I think it's Ted Moore, where he uses like a, like a little feedback system and an XY controller and shows that you can, click here, set it here, click here, set it here, and it'll find everything in between. Um, the only interesting thing I did was I turned it into a little bee patcher that would detect how many inputs you had in a list and you could put how many outputs you wanted and go from there. And so we took that and just sort of turned it into what is that initial sort of ambient harmonic motion first half of the piece and then while I was working on that Jeff was working on the second half which was the more beat based thing which ended up being a really simple converting the the data coming in straight into binary 
So zero one zero zero one zero one one, like at that being the grid. Mm. So as you move in some sort of small plane, you get kind of similar related beats because that those larger numbers will stay the same in the binary code and the smaller parts, you know, your essentially 16th notes or 32nd notes, however you're looking at it, will change until you get farther away and then you'll get newer and newer sounds. And so we just, we had mapped the controllers to that and then picked each voice being, you know, snare, kick, hi-hats. I think we had two hi-hats and like a snare kick thing going on. And the hot hands were mostly controlling a large filter on the whole system. And then we had these two side plinths, which had um, bass sounds coming in. And I think an arpeggiated sound coming in, which were also just controlling, I think like a feedback and filter type thing going on to get some big growly textures. Mm. Well, yeah. Stage. Um running kind of the sonic palette um so he was kind of the the unseen wizard of oz back there uh controlling uh so the so everyone on stage was attenuating you know and gating everything and performing it as an instrument but he is off stage with the computer telling when kind of the, the form of the piece is now going to be uh flipping mm. into the sonic palette and now we're going to be ending so he was mm. controlling the he was driving the larger trajectory mm. yeah. yeah 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 since it was such a site-based piece where we couldn't set it up before we were i mean we got in there maybe three days before showtime set everything up we had a basic idea of the patch we had never set it up with multiple tethers we had never been able to train it and see what the sounds were actually what we wanted and there was no time where we could actually all move together and see what it would sound like. So it was like kind of a race to the finish. There were things that we were like, oh, we would love for it to like change based on a timer. But we're like, we don't have time to implement that. And Jeff's just going to press a button on the side and it's going to make our lives a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I'm, I, I'm sure people listening will certainly um, sympathize with that. It's uh, something that happens very often. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm really interested to hearing about uh, the process of of training the models for the so um, I'm assuming the MLP uh, regressor that um, right. was used for the mapping. So so you only had three days. Um, yeah. So yeah, how 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 did that work? How did how did you approach? I mean, did you did you uh, notably did you did you approach things from a gestural perspective by thinking of what could be interesting gestures and then thinking together what is a sound that goes with that or did you depart from the sound and then kind of derive gestures from that how, how did training how did the process of training those models occur over those three days yeah so the training was the most annoying part because most of the time it was just me and Jeff and possibly Bora, depending on what she had during those days in the space at any given time. Like it was an ensemble piece, but we didn't have an ensemble there for three straight days to train, you know, oh, this whole shape is something that sounds like this. It was more like this, me, I'm gonna move this over here and then it's going to sound like this and we're going to pull it back and it's going to sound like this and this is going to be one thing that we can guarantee sounds like this but once everything is moving together who knows what's going to happen and so we kind of, I, we kind of just said okay well let's do the best we can with what we have and try and take what we think is something that embodies this these sort of motions this sort of place as you're pushing out for, for if I remember things correctly, it was like, as you pushed out, it was a lot of like higher harmonic sounds and you pulled back and you got sort of bass sounds. So it would get this nice flow of going, um, and like trying to have that as much as possible. Um, but it's tough to know whether or not it gets, <laughs> yeah, here's, here's our little, um, Here, here's our, our little uh, very professional score that we created that's taped to the ground yeah and so right. everything was getting everything was getting made together so it was like okay well we have these motions that we've thought of how out, can we out, how can we communicate them and put them together. together back together back that's cat eye 
um, yeah. up and down cat eye. Um, then there's, what is this, twirl, where you take um, take both things and then twirl this way, twirl that way. And then S-curve was twirl and go in front of the other person and make an intersection twirl and go S-curve around and make another diamond there. So it was these four kinds of, the, so it was like one, two, three, two, two. No, there were four counts in two, three, four. Cat eye, two, three, four. Up and down. So it had a tempo. It was very durational and kind of ambient, but it has a, you know, a tempo to it um, that became very kind of meditative and very pleasing to look mm. at and listen. Um, well, it, it certainly it seems like, like everyone is very coordinated when 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 you watch the piece um, <laughs> because we tape these things to the ground and essentially yeah, we're yeah. whispering we, to each other the whole time <laughs> we were we were working we did we never ran through it until we actually performed it which was quite fun we were very like <laughs> what do we do when do we end um but yeah we're it was if we're doing we're, we're we're getting the chance to do it again and we're actually going to be working with ensemble decipher and i'm really looking forward to i think it'll be a much more exciting training process where i don't have to like push things out be like okay jeff i guess this is what we're doing here and then move on to the next one i guess this is what we're doing here and then and then it was just like okay like i'm gonna move these two together how does that sound sort of experience where it's like more i can have a whole ensemble and I can we can put them in different positions and kind of come to an agreement as to like what is the sound that we want um it'll be a lot less guesswork and a lot more um there'll be a lot more sound creation there mm. yeah yeah so I just want to clarify that the cat's cradle version is you know a it was a it's a working prototype and, and and because it was in an academic institution it's really kind of the the proof of concept of a of a piece that is on its way um it's going to be premiered with ensemble decipher this october um at roulette which is a roulette intermedium which is an experimental venue in brooklyn new york um an ensemble decipher uh, is a six-person laptop ensemble. Uh, so we are workshopping it actually later this month in Portland, uh, and it will properly and and in that workshop will be exactly what Davis talked about, like the luxury of actually now actually having an ensemble to dedicatedly move these things and actually attenuate them in a way that you know now that we have the time and the people and the players to really and what's exciting about that first one was just like yeah it, it was a you know it was a boil and it was it was it was, we, it was definitely a scramble but it was so cool because like davis said in the process he's like it's there's no other way to do it but that but like this like you can't know the piece until it's built and you can't make until the thing is installed and set up and strung all the values are going to change and they're all going to be like like you can't there's no other way to do it than just to do it and to build it and and make it so i literally kept hearing in my head the whole time i was like if you build it they will come i'm just like literally just like just build it and like we'll we'll figure it out along the way <laughs> mm. um and so it you know it's exciting because it's like what is it is it a is it a musical sculpture is it an interactive performance piece is it a gestural you know is, is it it's, I mean, it's kind of all of these things, which is neat. Um, and, you know, I actually started working with Princeton Laptop Orchestra a long time ago in a visual capacity. I remember Jeff had asked me to come on board to think about the staging because ever because Plork has always been so, you know, I mean, I get it. Like your 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 primary concern is the coding and and how things are going to work. And and he brought me on to literally be like, can you make can you keep an eye of how it should be staged? And so like I definitely you know like how it should be lit. If you're going to do things with brain sensor stuff, like put a piece of fluorescent tape on every single brain node so that people in the audience can see that there's something happening on that head, right? So it's kind of like the blind spots I feel like that sometimes happen in the coding world where it's like. Like the visual component is almost like not necessarily the most prioritized thing. And I get why. Um, but from the from the kind of theatrical and gestural and that side of how I work, or I'm a musician, but I always think about music visually. Um, when I compose, that's the first thing I do is I try to see the performance. Or I try to see a piece. Um and imagine it um visually first, and then I work backwards from there. Um 
from like, what do I want? How do I see it? How do I want it to feel? How do I, what kind of sensation do I want people to leave with in the end? And what kind of sonic journey do I want to craft for them? Because I think ultimately performance is about taking people on a ride or like taking people somewhere, right? Like I think a measure of success is if you can transport people to me mm-hmm. or like if it, it, it's a good performance if you can, if you feel that you have taken people somewhere or have offered a new kind of way to see something. Um, and that was, yeah. So it was many years of being around Plork and understanding kind of their language and also getting to know that theater very well and that whole AV team. So it was like many years of just this kind of these small idea, like, you know, just that visual idea of like, this should really be strong and this should really be blacklit. And, you know, Davis and I try to find the right black light extension fishing wire. Yeah. <laughs> Took a couple of And it makes too. a difference. Once we found the right one, it was like, oh, this is the right one. <laughs> yeah. I was like, are you ready for the lights to go off? It's going to look awesome. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, you know, so it, the whole theater is drenched in black light. You know, there are restraints in the sense that it has to be in a controlled environment and it has to be, you know, so th- it's a very particular piece and it's very hardware bound for sure. Mm, um, yeah, as it's very specific to this hardware and to these sensors. And so, um, you know, that that is always something that enters my mind as a composer of being like, I wonder if this piece can live beyond, you know, or if, if the tech, the tech will determine whether it can live or not. Mm. Um, but, uh, but I think, you know, we made something really unique and greater than the sum of its parts. And like, I don't know, I look at it and I, I even sometimes I still am like, what is it? But I think it's cool. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. No, and it's, yeah, it's really interesting to hear you kind of having that very, um, audience centric kind of uh, aspect in your mind whilst you're developing it and yeah that visual aspect which is obviously super important um but I'd also like to hear perhaps about um about what it's like to perform with this piece what the experience is like for the performers um because you were both on stage during during the piece um and it's been described as as you just said, an interdisciplinary performance. Um, and you said earlier that there was perhaps a somewhat meditative nature to it. But um, yeah, I wonder if uh, if you could talk about your roles, um, sort of the difference between longitudinal tethers versus hot hand sensors and, and, and what your experience was like performing with such a system. Yeah, I mean, I think between Davis, Jeff, and I, we all like divided and conquered because we took the three different components that this piece requires. So Davis led the tether team. <laughs> um, myself and Claire were kind of I like we were the hands of Cat's Cradle. And then Jeff was off stage uh, masterminding <laughs> everything. And so each plork, each plork. <laughs> Um, I guess one of the, I guess, main artists of this piece, right, was was kind of on on deck for different roles. Um, from a, from, so, you know, I'll let Davis speak about the, the tether team side. Um, but all of, from the, from the hand gesture side, really, it was just a matter of how can we, how, I mean, the experience of performing it was actually really thrilling really kind of like a spatially exciting and kind of to be aware of what the audience is seeing as a larger image i guess between myself and claire you know like it was certainly just like hearing the different cutoff filters happen and interesting you know and just trying to light ourselves in a way that we became pantomimers i guess or in a way i mean that's kind of what it is like we're pantomiming the gestures that then um is creating a, I'm trying to create a subliminal cause and effect relationship between the tethers moving and our hands moving. Obviously they're not exact, it's not a direct one-to-one relationship, but it's creating the subliminal kind of strings of like, how does cause and effect work in a, in a stage picture like this? Um, I also was a tether person at us, you know, during the training process or literally showing how everyone should do this thing. Um, (laughs) I remember, and, uh, you know, and it's really exciting to be a sculptural person because like like what I'm saying is that, no, I don't think of myself as an individual performer. I definitely think of myself as like a part of a larger sculpture. 
Um, like you're very aware of making the diamond with your next person next to you and going across and make it like you. So even just doing your own gesture is not enough. It's actually being very aware of the person next to you and whether like geom geometrically, whether you've hit the thing that we need to hit yet. Um, and of course, when I was looking at it for the first time out in the audience, I was like, I, I think I said to the person next to me, and I'm like, I think it looks like a 3D Zelda Triforce. <laughs> like, I'm not sure what's happening, but okay, we're moving on. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it was, yeah, Davis, what? How, how did it feel for you? Um, yeah, I mean, it was a really, it was really fun. It was very like once it started because I'm the first person that moves. I'm kind of, I kind of had to like, I was the only person that really like had built up the forum with Bora. So I kind of had to take on that leadership role of like, all right, whatever happens, y'all kind of just need to follow me. We all have the structure below us, but it was very like, like naked, like I've got to start this, I've got to go. And once it's moving, it's, it has its own sort of energy, but that was also like the first time I'd ever performed in really any sort of context outside of behind a computer. Um, so like, that was a little scary for me, but it was really fun. Like I really enjoyed it. Um, it definitely, it, it felt as we were doing it very, there was, I really enjoyed the, the story as like people come out and sort of like that aspect of it as a performer, I really enjoyed just like the way, um, and the, the way the stage changed as people came on, um, like in the energy that, that added. So like starting out very, very small, it felt very, um, very quiet and very like meditative and and calm and then as more and more people were coming on like the chaos of the environment increased and so like the chaos of the performance increased a little bit and it, and I say chaos in a good way and because the, the the song the performance was moving towards this chaos element and you know once you have like I think we had like 11 people on stage at the end of it and like it's like all these rhythms flying around you and like you're trying to move around people um you really kind of don't think about yourself and you do think about the the big picture of what you're creating. You're like, all right, well, I got to go around you because I got to get this up here and I got to make sure that I come down so people can come over me. Um, so once everything was really in, was moving, it kind of just had its own sort of energy. Is like, we kind of all had to trust that everyone knew where they were going, which was a really fun sort of performance aspect. Mm. Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear you talk about that kind of chaos and and because it's something that does come up quite a lot, I think, um, in these kinds of fields, sort of people trying to ride a balance between chaos and and surprise and control, and it's it's a it's a subject that people spend a lot of time trying to get right. And and yeah, it the the whole structure does it it seems somewhat kind of fragile because uh yeah you, it, it sometimes you see people uh almost getting their foot caught momentarily in a string and 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 some other kind of minor imperfections like that so right. it's interesting to see to see that um and because there's so many people of course working together on stage it's uh yeah it's it's it, the complicatedness of the system and it's it's really engaging um but around that I, I i wondered um if there were any kind of conscious decisions um notably on the kind of interface that was available to jeff um that would allow him to control that kind of stuff because um so uh, you said that um he would sort of move the main trajectory of the piece through various kind of configurations and um, so we've got the kind of ambient stuff at the beginning moving towards the more um Bjorky stuff uh, towards the end but yeah did 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 Jeff have a lot of control about the 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 different processes that were happening would he tweak things as the performance would go along would would he be able to rectify something if something went wrong or or was it kind of just once it was off it was off and and kind of free flying yeah i mean if something went horribly wrong no he had very little control um we kind of we decided on the jeff thing because like oh like if something did accidentally get clicked between the two major sections he could very quickly click back and we wouldn't have to worry about that but that was more or less his his major control i think there was a um kind of the harmonic progression as well was more or less controlled by by Jeff but um once it was off it was off um if someone fell someone fell <laughs> there really wasn't any way to rectify that uh, everyone just had to watch their feet 
and and move carefully. <laughs> yeah, everyone had a general idea of where to. Yeah, Jeff was really controlling the sonic palette, like of when we switched from the spectral section to the groove section, and then to the kind of more outro chaos. Uh, like, how do we just decelerate from here? <clears throat> um, yeah, uh, <clears throat> I guess. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting to kind of see this idea of like, yeah, is is it really like the like what you like? I, you you brought up this wonderful piece called the the feedback cello that I looked up, um, and from Alice Eldridge and Chris Kiefer, and yeah, I wonder about this piece too. I was like, is this a collective? Uh, is this a collective instrument, or is this a you know a system that we see as a whole, or is it like, is it one instrument that's steered? I mean. The way this version is set up, it's almost three different instruments steered, where it's the hand, well, no, it's one instrument, which is all the tethers, and then it's the second instrument might be the side plants, just because those are the rhythm and bass elements, and then <clears throat> the hands were really just um, uh, attenuators and filters, so I, would I wouldn't call them an instrument, but those were kind of the three parties of sound, I guess, um, and uh yeah, this idea of collaboration around the piece is really, I I think with, with really, even just speaking to from the intro of this podcast, like it speaks to the strength of how different all of our backgrounds are, uh, but we all meet at the nexus and love of like <laughs> of Bjork and electronic music and strange spectral signatures and wonderful learning like coding devices and just finding new ways to express music um so um i think that's what's exciting about things like plork or, or laptop orchestras where there there is no way to do anything right like it, it's like what you start with the concept and you start with the idea and you hack from there and i think that's so awesome and thrilling about this model is that there's no right or wrong way to do it it's it's always idea driven and driven from you know, then creating systems of constraints and limitations to then create the most expressivity possible. Mm. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings me on to a question I wanted to ask, um, maybe sort of taking a step back and seeing it, uh, taking a kind of broader perspective on, on the kind of collaborative work that happens around Plork. And, um, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to get both of your thoughts on, on, the the whole configuration and the kind of profiles of people that um that aggregate around plork and and um and perhaps compare maybe talk about the collaboration that happens there and what it allows you to to do um in regard to each of your practices how how do you see pieces that you create within the context of plork perhaps differing from pieces that you create um on your own or in 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 other contexts um yeah I, I, and it's quite a broad question but yeah it'd be interesting to perhaps hear about the kind of affordances of of of, of that kind of uh collaborative space um yeah i mean i think plork is is really great because um you really don't know who you're gonna have in, in any given time i've only been here for like three semesters but the makeup of Plork has changed each semester. A couple of people kind of stick around all the time, but most, the majority of people are like sometimes there, sometimes not. And definitely through semester, it's been, you know, different people are just like, oh, I want to do Plork this semester. And we kind of try and tailor it to what everyone can do and what everyone's doing. And so the pieces, it may end up changing bit just based off of the group of people that you get. And since not everyone in here is going to be a classically trained musician and so may not have certain, you know, traditional Western music values or capabilities, we kind of have to think about the pieces in that realm. We did a piece this past semester. Um, I can't remember the name exactly, but it was basically uh, Claire who was doing this piece that was like based on sort of octopus motion. And we were doing using these, these um, DMX lights to sort of color match as we went through the piece. And we wanted to do this thing with rhythm and like drumming that would like add to the chaos sections. But like at the end of the day, we were like, well, like 
I'm probably the only person that's a drummer here and we don't have the time to like work up a couple of drum sections between everyone. And so we just had to sort of scrap that. And we came up with this like shaker texture that we did. So we're like, oh, like everyone can do some shaking stuff that gets then affected. And so like the piece changes and the music changes based off of the people that are performing, which I really enjoy. I really enjoy thinking about like, okay, what are we writing for and who are we working with? So like, how are we going to make that music? Yeah, Plork always reminds me of like an interactive music, like devised theater scenario where it's like all the laws of like how devised theater works is like, who who do you have in the room? Like, what is what are your like, what what is in the room? What are the things that people want to discuss? And then kind of crafting it from there, you know, like, um, so it's really exciting from that point of view. It is, you know, it's frustrating just because sometimes it's it's a attendance and dipping in and out and i get it because the princeton semester is quite um quite you know uh just a, a heavy lift for the kids um and so we have them sometimes we sometimes we don't um but to still be able to carry on with the vision of like yeah what are the ideas that are on deck this semester and like how to because that was <clears throat> this cat's cradle idea i talked to jeff i think about since like i don't know year two I graduated year eight. Okay. <laughs> like, he's like, boy, you've talked about this idea for a long time. He's like, if you don't do it now, I don't know when you're going to do it. And I'm like, you're right. So it's like, it became that time of being like, it's truly now or never, because I don't think that this piece could live out. Like, it's not something that like, you're going to order on Boozy and Hawks and like my ensemble will do it next semester. You know, <laughs> like, no, this is a, like a highly idiosyncratic piece that is like, I don't think anyone but Plork <laughs> Or like the people who know Plork can do it, you know. So, mm. um, um, so in that way, you know, that's one of the constraints is that it's so specific that it that sometimes it's not as transferable. But we are working on that with this version of like, yeah, how do we standardize it now that it's been prototyped? Now that it's been, you know, it the proof of concept can stand. It's like, yeah, how can it be turned into something replicable um, that can be done over and over again, and hopefully that doesn't have to. You know, I that I I lament that sometimes with new music or <clears throat> um new 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 technology where like things can things are brilliant for like a second and then like they don't go they they are so specific to where it started that it can't go far. Um I'd love for that barrier to be to be jumped. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well it's... we talked it on the I'm sorry, on the no, go, on go the ahead. theater thing, we've uh we were talking about like with all the tech guys that work in in Taplin, which is our performance space, that like a lot of this electronic music ensemble stuff, especially the stuff that Plurk does, ends up working more in a theater environment and would work better with theater people because, you know, theater people are used to getting like a whole week of tech. And like we kind of need a whole week of tech because it takes us at least a whole day to get set up. And even when things are working, they may not work tomorrow because oh, we unplugged something or like someone stepped over a wire or like someone's someone brought a different computer. And so like we really do need that like space and time. And like in terms of like theater people, just like people that are open to doing something that they've never done and performing it, you know, in a couple months, like you don't have to be a professional tether player to come and play our tether piece. Like it, it is pretty straightforward once you learn the gestures like this is what it's going to do and this is what you're going to do and it's not something that you have to be trained in your whole life you can just sort of adapt and overcome whatever sort of weird thing you have to do with us to make a musical piece and mm. so that's pretty fun that is a, I think, yeah uh, go ahead go ahead yeah. i think you're putting your finger on something that is like the, why theater and, and electronic music like in it's why in the past it hasn't come together because theater is so hierarchically hierarchically driven not necessarily by it's due to budgetary reasons the intensity of work that needs to happen the time they have in the theater it creates a need for hierarchy in theater where like ideas have to work a certain way and they need to go top down and the set designer does this and the lighting person does this and it's very set. And what's exciting is when you can start getting into that process and breaking down that hierarchy where actually, you know, lighting boards do take DMX, they take MIDI and they take, and actually some of the most exciting and original things I've ever seen at Princeton at the, at the Taplin Auditorium 
were have been plork concerts because it's when plork Plorksters get involved with like, hey, what does happen if we actually hook up our MIDI signal to the lighting board and we end up doing this with the camera? Really amazing things start to happen <laughs> when you start thinking out of the box with all this wonderful gear um, with people who have the coding power to be able to, you know, make, make synergies across this way when normally everything only falls this way. So <clears throat> um, I think that's what's... Uh, you know, it's like that, that is exciting in terms of, because music and lights always go together. I feel like in some kind of, and more and more as we grow into the future, I feel like people, when they go to like a musical concert, expect visuals or expect some kind of visual component now. Um, so, or the visuals definitely dominate. So I think that that's something to, it also creates a sense of focus, which I think sometimes in electronic music is very difficult. Um, where do you look, you know, or like, yeah, I just went to the Tim Hecker concert and like, he was nowhere to be found on stage. He's not behind a laptop glowing from underneath. He was actually, I think literally in another room, he did it all in darkness, all in fog and just had the sunset and the fog be the entire show. I thought that was really well done in terms of intentional visual choice like that of time and place and how the sound is going to be perceived and received. Um, so, you know, while even the performers themselves might be nervous, like in, in a piece like Cat's Cradle, they're all drenched in black light. So, you know, it was required for them to all wear black, even black face masks. I was like black socks. And then we had just like little pop elements of um, fluorescent nail polish, fluorescent small accents so that we could see that they were people there. There were humans actually controlling this. But in that way, it's kind of like being a puppeteer, right? Where Or like in Bunraku, where the Bunraku puppeteer is in black and the and the puppet is actually the, what, the thing that's seen. And so... There is definitely that element in Cat's Cradle of being like, of disappearing, but then only disappearing only to be become a force. Like you are a visual force now, but also a sonic force. But you're just you don't need to be like a known persona. But yes, we are agents of this larger kind of sculpture that's breathing together. Hmm. Yeah. In any case, yeah. No, it's it's it, it is a really good point about the. Linking with the theatrical uh, way of doing things because it's uh, because yeah, but it, I mean, on a practical side, it would certainly be uh, an answer to, to to this problem that you bring up of, of being able to transport a piece like this to, to other places. So, obviously, you know, there, there is something to the kind of uh, ephemeral nature of, of very bespoke pieces that, that that can give them some charm but you know i would love to see this piece you know but i i'm not going to be able to get to princeton anytime soon so <laughs> so obviously it's uh i i'd love for for that to be um to be possible and also as you say on on a on a more kind of aesthetic level there's there's there, it makes sense because uh yeah music and and visuals and light and you know these are things that 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 necessarily um go together and then they make sense together and and, and yeah and the thea theatrical um approach is 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 actually a really interesting um perspective that i'd never kind of even considered for for some reason but uh yeah i'm, I'm glad you've brought it up um experimental theater is maybe the most like that but then the people who i know work in that side of industry either only work in experimental theater or not in theater at all, but work with like rock bands and interesting people who are, who favor and want that kind of interactivity on their tours or making their music feel and look palpable um, without being distracting, that it's a support, right? That it's literally a generative response to the music. So. Mm. Yeah. Great. I think we're heading there. We're heading there though, as an industry, as a world. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely. So, um, so when when is it that uh, the second performance is going to be taking place again? To remind us, um, Monday, October twenty third. Uh, Cat's Cradle will premiere at uh, Brooklyn's Roulette Intermedium, which is in downtown Brooklyn by Ensemble Decipher. And if uh, for whatever reason you were on the West Coast, the Portland workshop of that will happen on. Uh, it's probably not necessarily open either, but <laughs> June 24th and 25th, um, we will be getting that ready for the October premiere. 
Okay, great. Well, we'll be taking all those details down and putting them with the links down below. And I've, of course, encourage anyone who has the possibility to uh, to get there to 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 make uh, to make the trip to go and see it because. Uh, if if this talk hasn't been enough to to convince people, it, it really is a fascinating work, and it's and it's bringing up yeah so many interesting questions, um, and and it's a beautiful piece above all. So uh, yeah, um, thank you so much for talking about it. It's been it's been really really interesting um, to get both of your perspectives on it. Um, yeah, so as as I said, uh, everything that we've been talking about today will be linked uh at the bottom of this and um if people are watching this on youtube or um or on the audio outlets then uh, there'll be a link to the uh, page on the the learn platform um there as well um so bora and davis thank you so much um it was a real pleasure having you thank you oh. this is wonderful thank you for making this wonderful <laughs> hello to the people in the back <laughs> yeah no, it's Justin. <laughs> okay. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Our, our great tech people. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thanks you so much, and uh, thank I you so much. Speak to you again soon. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, Jacob.